This is Jocko Podcast number 338 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. When I was teaching close quarters combat, which is, you know, going into rooms, going into buildings and clearing rooms and clearing buildings, clearing hallways, clearing stairwells, there's all kinds of things that a SEAL has to do correctly when, when they do this. And there are a lot of rules, a lot of standard operating procedures that you have to follow how you enter the room, where your feet go, where you aim your weapon and where you don't aim your weapon, how far you stay off the wall, what you say to your shooting buddy when you need to move, what you, how you respond to your shooting buddy when he needs to move. There's a bunch of verbal and nonverbal signals that you give with your voice, with your weapon, with your posture, with your actions. You gotta know how to give those signals, you gotta know how to receive those signals. And then there's a bunch of calls that you actually make. And again, some of those calls you make and you pass that word via verbal or other types of visual signals, when to move, where to move, what to address in a, in a particular room or in a hallway or in a building because you gotta prioritize and execute when you go into a room, there's multiple things going on. You gotta figure out which one's the most important one. You gotta support your shooting buddy at all times, that's cover and move. You gotta do all this with simple, clear, concise communication. You gotta make sure that while you're doing all these things, you're supporting the overall intent of the mission, which is decentralized command. So there's a whole bunch of things going on when you're doing close quarters combat. And when I taught this, there was, you know, we as instructor cadre would get really critical about the actions that the guys entering the room made because we wanted them to stay tight on the SOPs because uh, imagine you enter a room and you go where you're not supposed to go. You can get shot by, by your partner. Mm-hmm. So, so you got to get guys to do the right thing. And then they've got to be able to make decisions. They got to be able to make decisions quickly and so us as cadre you know we would we would definitely harp on these guys and and give them firm critique when they screwed something up hey you're too far off the wall or you you should address that open door first or you didn't clear behind that couch over there so we're getting on these guys and there's a million points to critique and criticize and we did that we, and again, the reason we did that was to make sure that they follow the SOPs because when you get into a platoon or you're in a platoon and you don't follow the SOPs, there's some SOPs if you don't follow them in CQC, you can get yourself killed, you can get your buddy killed, you can get the everybody killed. So we're hypercritical. Now, as I watch that and as, you know, as, as my cadre as I watched my cadre, you know, I sort of detached and would would let the cadre sort of run the those those finer points of the standard operating procedures. And I got to a point where, you know, I would talk to guys when they do something wrong, where I'd say, "Hey, you did what you did. Let's figure out why." So, so in other words, oh, Echo went into the room and he address this door instead of that couch first, you know, and I could say, hey, that door was open, it's a bigger, th-. I, I would say, hey, Echo, you you address the, the couch and you turn your back on the door, what were you thinking about? 
because mm-hmm. I wanted to know why you did it so that I can learn more and it can allow me to teach better, right? If I know why you did something and you say, well, you know, I thought that the biggest threat was the one that was closest to me. Well, this one might be further away, but if it's a bigger space to hide behind, whatever the case may be. So as I learned why people made mistakes, that helped me be able to teach these things better because then I could close some of those loose ends as I'm teaching it. And I took this to other areas of training as well, especially with the leaders, right? Especially with the leaders, the young SEAL leaders, trying to understand not just what they did wrong and point out to them what they did wrong, but why they did it so that I could adjust the training to address the shortfall and I could address and adjust my own my own methodology of instruction to make sure that I explained it in a way that they understood why why we were doing something a certain way. So I needed to figure out I needed to figure out what they were thinking and why they were thinking it. And I learned a lot from doing that. And of course, we would do this type of thing after missions as well. You know, the the debrief. We get done with the mission. We immediately are going to go do do a debrief. What happened? why it happened, what we could do better. And of course, I if we had a, a someone on the team that messed something up, I would talk to them about why they did it. Not just ream them out because they screwed up, but hey, what were you thinking when you made that move? What were you thinking? Why did you move into that building? What did you think was gonna happen? And and you know, if you read Extreme Ownership, the first chapter after the blue on blue, of course, we obviously debriefed and we created some new standard operating procedures to prevent it from happening again or at least mitigate the risk as much as we could. And if you read the rest of the book, there were even more situations that we talk about in the book that were close to being catastrophic fratricides, catastrophic blue on blues. But we were able to stop those from happening either from our procedures that we had put into place or our better understanding of what could unfold or our awareness of what was happening. And when I got home from that deployment, I debriefed that operation, that blue on blue, I debriefed it over and over again to the the SEAL teams and the platoons that were going through training and the troops that were going through training to try and pass on the lessons learned to everyone. And then we set up training that we, we, we organized the training so that those lessons learned would get embedded into these young SEAL leaders. They would understand how these things happen so they could prevent them from happening. And I was told many times over the years that the training and awareness that we gave people prevented many friendly fire incidences from happening. And I um, mean, case in point, Jason Gardner's got a few in that he that happened to him on his deployment to Afghanistan where he straight up said, you know, like hey, if I wouldn't have been aware if we wouldn't wouldn't have had that blue on blue training, that this we probably would have had a blue on blue for real. So I heard that many times. <sighs> now a lot of people have been asking me about the horrific scenario that unfolded in Uvalde, Texas. A psychotic and sociopathic gunman entered a school and killed 19 innocent children and two adults. 
and I can't even fathom the grief and the fam the the just trauma for those families, the horror, the the hole in their lives that they have now that can never be replaced, and the potential of life that was thrown away before it even had a chance to grow. And it's just a completely heartbreaking situation. And what has made the situation even harder to process was the response from law enforcement on the scene. And of course, we all like to think about and talk about what I would have done. What I would have done if I were there. And, and I get that. Everyone is horrified by what took place. And we all like to think that we would have been braver, that we would have been more decisive, that we would have had more situational awareness, that we would have handled the scenario in a way that created a better outcome. Of course, we all like to we would all give anything to be able to create a better outcome in that situation. And unfortunately, and the situation has already happened. The outcome is complete. And we can't change what happened and what the response was any more than I could change the decision a young seal made when he walked into a room and moved the wrong way or address the wrong threat. I, I couldn't change what he had done. I, I could tell him what he did wrong, but what I really needed to do, as I said, was to understand why, why he made that decision and learn from it and then figure out how I could teach other people to not make that mistake. And that is unfortunately the best I can offer in this situation as well. Now, there are other things to talk about with regards to contributing factors in this situation. And you've got mental health, you've got media violence, you've got dehumanization of people, you've got gun laws and their enforcement or lack of enforcement. And I talked about some of those on the Jocko Unraveling podcast with Daryl Cooper and all those the thing is with all those those are massive subjects those are massive subjects all of them that are being discussed at the national level and will take some unified efforts to solve it'll take some unified efforts and by that i mean people actually working together which we don't seem to have any of so as that conversation continues to take place i just want to look at what happened tactically on the ground and try and figure out why it happened. And I'm going to use a timeline, follow a timeline from the Texas Tribune. It was last updated on June 9th. And and just, just to note, we're recording this today on June 13th, 2022. And it's just based on simple open source reporting 
and, and I'm sure that there will be more detailed information available in the future and and maybe at some point we'll go over it with more detail but the thing is there are lessons to be learned even from what we know right now that that I want to talk a little bit about again from the tactical perspective to try and figure out why things happened like this in this event so again from the Texas Tribune this is May 24th 2022 around 11 a.m. the shooter sends Facebook messages the shooter sends private Facebook messages to a girl in Germany he met online and tells her about his plans to shoot his grandmother the gunman shoots his grandmother in the face and calls the police the shooter steals his grandmother's vehicle and drives from his home to rob elementary school which is about two mile two miles away so there you have a clear declaration that something bad is going to happen made by the individual himself and I don't know if there's some kind of a social media 911 call that you can make it seems like it seems like there should be some kind of a social media 911 to call where if someone is making threats of violence via social media that people that see these threats can have someone to contact where action can be taken and i don't know if there is an ai that can screen for things like this my guess is yes considering that if i google search something on my phone or on my laptop the very next screen that i click i get advertisements for whatever that thing that i just searched is so to so to think that we couldn't come up with or that the tech companies couldn't come up with something that was combing through messages combing through posts looking for threatening content it seems like that would be a feasible thing and and at a minimum to have something where there's like a universal 911 call to make if someone is posting threatening things it seems like that would be a move that would be able to help these when these situations unfold um moving to 11:28 a.m. the shooter arrives at the school the shooter crashes the vehicle into a ditch near the school he fires his gun at two male witnesses who began approaching the crash from a nearby funeral home the witnesses flee and call 911 so so this this is at 11:28 when you get a shooter that's in the vicinity of a school there's got to be a, a really good lockdown protocol that happens and this is something that when, when we talk about lockdown protocol w- one thing that that i think needs to be discussed is if you have a shooter that's external to the school lock the doors but when you have a shooter that's in the school everyone should get the hell out of the school you shouldn't keep people in the school anymore so having a couple different immediate action drills when it comes to when when it, when when a shooter is either in a school we're going to get out of the school if he's outside the school we're going to stay in the school we're going to lock it down 
Those, those require two different reactions, not one. Because if there's a shooter in the school, you should get the hell out of the school. Eleven thirty a.m. A teacher calls nine one one. A teacher at the elementary school makes a nine one one call reporting the crash and seeing the shooter, noting he has a gun. The shooter walks toward the school, climbs the fence into the parking lot, and shoots at the school several times. Again. If the shooter's outside the school, we should have an instant protocol to keep him outside the school. 11.31 a.m., shooter walks through the school parking lot. The shooter reaches the last row of vehicles in the school parking lot, firing his rifle throughout. Police arrive at the funeral home. So you remember the, the people that initially reacted to the crash, they ran back to a funeral home called the police. The police now arrive at the funeral home. A school district police officer speeds in the direction of a person they think is the man with the gun reported by the teacher, but drives past the gunman and heads to the back of the school mistaking a teacher for the shooter. So you have a problem of positive identification now where you got teachers who are the only adults in the schools except for the shooter. So how are you gonna tell them apart? This is where we look and say, hey, is there an armband that we have? Is there, in an emergency, everyone knows to put on a certain T-shirt or a certain vest? And I know, you know, you might be thinking, oh, that sounds stupid. If you've ever been into a, a combat situation where there's multiple people running around on the battlefield, positive identification is a real problem. It is really hard to identify who's who. And you can make it a lot easier if you throw, if you give people some kind of a uniform to put on where, oh, all the teachers are wearing a vest that says teacher on it, an orange vest. Eleven thirty-three a.m. The shooter enters the school. Shooter enters the school for the back through the back door. He shoots at least 100 rounds inside classes, uh, classrooms 111 and 112, which are connected. Authorities originally said a teacher left the door propped open, but later said a teacher closed the door and the automatic lock failed. And there, there's she's, uh, a quote here. She, she remembers pulling the door closed while telling 911 that he was shooting. She thought the door would lock because the door is always supposed to lock. I've heard some people talk about um, the horrible idea of, or what seems like a horrible idea of turning schools into, you know, bunkers type thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're going to have armed guards at every. And. Look, no one wants to bring their kids to a school where the school feels like it's a reverse prison, right? Or some kind of a prison environment where you've got barbed wire and you've got bars on the window and all this kind of stuff. No one wants to bring their their kids to school like that. But there is a way to properly secure schools where it doesn't look like some prison camp. There's absolutely a way to make that happen. And I think that just about any parent, I think actually any parent would be okay with having some security in place 
so that the school is a, a, a place where people can't get into unless they're supposed to be there. So the back door's open. Look, does this mean I'm a little bit paranoid? May, yes. Yeah, a little bit paranoid. And I think a little bit of paranoia is actually okay. A little bit of paranoia is actually okay. So that was at 11.33. At 11.35, the, the Uvalde police enter the school. Three police officers rush to the same door that the gunman used to enter, which was closed. They enter and receive grazing wounds from the gunman. They retreat. So response time has been, well, 11.28 a.m. The shooter arrives at the school. 11.31, he's walking through the parking lot. 11.33, he enters the school. The, the police arrive pretty quickly. Now, if there was some kind of security guard there, guess what? Response time is zero minutes. And does this mean that your kid feels like he's going to school in a in a in a damn prison because there's a plain closed security guard there? I I'm okay with that. Do I love it? No. I don't. But w- w- this is not that big of a price to pay to keep kids safe. There the, the idea that a guard or an armed guard has to be some overt presence that the kids have to walk by to get to class. Oh, there's, you know, Mr. Fred with the, with the AR-15 guarding us. I feel intimidated because I'm a little kid. I don't, like, I don't like it. It makes me feel uncomfortable. It doesn't have to be like that. No, it doesn't actually have to be that way at all. There can be a very low visibility option for that. And it can be a low visibility option that the children don't know much about, but the public does know about. And therefore, it also, it also causes deterrence for a would-be school shooter. If the would-be school shooter knows that there are armed people in the school, they're probably gonna figure out a different target. So the police officers enter the school, they get shot at. Receive grazing wounds. They retreat. So, this is a tough one to, with what I know about, you know, the only words here, they retreat. And that they, that they received fire. This could mean a bunch of different things. This could mean full automatic fire that is at the, shooting at the door that they're trying to get through. And if that's the case, and they proceed in there, they're just all going to die. And now they can't help. Or is it some rounds came and they immediately retreated? I don't know. I don't know what happened there. I do know this. When you're getting shot at, you now have information. (laughs) You have 
very pertinent information. You know the general location. If you're taking rounds, you you know where they're you, you know at least a little bit where they're coming from. So now we can start to formulate some kind of a plan. You also know that you've got a high threat scenario and you've got children in there. Now you can't just put down cover fire and shoot back at a person in the school because there's a bunch of kids and you can get a friendly fire scenario happening. So you can't just lay down cover fire like you would over in a in a foreign country in a war. But you know where the bad guy is, generally speaking. You know at least the door that you're at, he has covered, which tells you what? There's other doors that he may not have covered, meaning other doors where he may not be able to engage. So we've tried one entry and we have now information that we can't get in there. So now what are we gonna do? Find another place to go. At this point, going back to the timeline here, Pete Arredondo, the chief of the school district's police department, also arrives at the scene around this time. He does not have his radios. Arredondo wanted both hands on his gun if he encountered the shooter and believed the radios would have slowed him down, his attorney said. No. That's, this is not, this is not even a thing. This is not even a, this is not even a remotely squared away concept in any way. What, the radio going slowing in, you down? Get, go, get, a, the radio slowing you down. B, both hands on your gun. I mean, you don't carry your radio in your hand mm. while you're shooting. You have... You have your radio, you have a a, a mic to, to talk into if you need to. Um, you going into a situation like this, communication during an event like this is beyond critical. It's beyond critical, especially if you're the chief. If you're overall in charge of what's happening, you are the one person that, absolutely needs a radio. And you know what, so does everybody else. Now you don't always, sometimes you don't always have every single person with a radio, but if you're overall in charge, you're the one that's gonna be communicating, receiving communications, giving directions. You're the one that's supposed to get an overall concept of what's happening. Now, this is an insane lack of judgment. And I would love to pull the thread on this and, and figure out what actually happened. My guess is some uh, the chief didn't look in his car, see his radio and go, you know what, I'm gonna leave my radio here. My guess is that's not what happened. That might be what the lawyer's saying as a rationalization. Well, he thought he might need it. Uh, he thought it might slow him down and thought that he want to have both hands on his guns, on his gun. That might be a, a, a post-operation rationalization excuse. My guess is that in the, in the panic of the situation, he didn't think about it and forgot it. 
And and by the way, this points to a, an equally insane lack of training. Because no one ever, in any kind of scenario ever, where more than one person is acting at, in different parts of a team, decides not to bring a radio. That's not a decision that anyone is going to make. I would grab my radio before, if I was in charge, I'd grab my radio before I grab my weapon. How you like that? So to be in charge and to decide not to bring your radio is complete and utter failure. And you know, I've seen some things where they ran some scenarios like this. The training, if you train one time doing this, and you're in charge, you'll say, damn, I better make sure I have good communications with my team. If you do this one time, if you approach a hostile target where there's bad guys in there, one time, no, no hostages, no children, just one bad guy, you put him in a building, and you have you and one other person, you'll, you'll make that radio an absolute priority. One time. Now you take a situation where you've got an active shooter and there's a bunch of kids and you've got uh, different units coming in from different places. You're going to freaking need a radio. And you would know that if you had any training whatsoever. Here's the thing. It takes practice. And I know this sounds crazy because everyone's, look, everyone's an arm, armchair quarterback. And everyone can sit there and look, of course I would have brought my radio. I'm telling you, I'm telling you this, it takes practice to know this. As obvious as it seems to everyone right now, it takes practice. You hear kids screaming, you hear gunshots going off, you're, you're the person in charge, you, you kind of panic and you go. You're, you haven't been trained to the proper level and you go in there without, uh, without a radio. So it's, it's again, reflects bad training. And at this point, former officers, including a deputy with the county sheriff's office, also enter the school at this time. So now we have seven police there against one. And again, I'm going to need to see the breakdown detail of, of, the, of the building itself, of where people entered. But you got more people in the school now. And by the way, by my numbers, that's seven police against one shooter. And I like those odds. Seven against one I like. Eleven thirty-seven. Gunman fires sixteen more rounds. Again, you have a school with little kids in it, and the gunman is shooting. What that means is you go. That's what that means. Uh, well, let me rephrase that. If you didn't already get the signal that there's a freaking gunman in a school and you haven't done everything you can to get in there, and now that gunman is shooting again, that's another blaring signal to get your ass in there. And, and, and by the way, these are, not, these are lessons that have been learned. When you look what happened at Col- Columbine, they came up with these same kind of conclusions. There was too much hesitation, there's too much waiting. When you hear this stuff happening, you have to take action. 
this is this is this is exactly the type of scenario where when I start was teaching the young seals, I had to teach them to be default aggressive. This is the exact kind of scenario. The problem's not going to solve itself. You have to go and solve it. That's what you have to do. And the reason that I had to teach them to be aggressive and have that be their default mode is because when things like this happen, people's natural mode isn't to take action. For many people, their natural mode is, oh, I don't know what's happening. I'm going to wait to try and figure out what's happening. That's what their instinct is. And we have to train that instinct out of many people. Not all people. Some people you actually have to train in the other direction. Some people you have to say, hey, hold on a second. You don't know, you have no idea what's happening. Don't go running in there. Most people, you have to train, hey, if it's going on and you can't tell what's happening, you need to get aggressive and figure out what's happening. You need to take action. And in a situation like this, where now you have a gunman in a school that's still shooting, it is time without question to do whatever you need to do to get in there. Now at 1.43 a.m., Rob Elementary and Uvalde police post on Facebook. They announce it that the school is under lockdown status due to gunshots in the area. By the way, this is like 150 rounds have been fired. The students and staff are safe in the building. The building is secure in a lockdown status, school officials say in an announcement. So there's no emergency communication in the building. And what I mean by that, there's no there's no pro word. So in the military, you have something called a pro word, which is one word that means something. That means a whole a whole scenario is taking place. So if I'm out on an operation and we start taking fire, heavy fire from the target building and we haven't entered the target yet, I have one word that I can say. And when I say that one word, everybody knows what to do. Everyone knows that there's no friendlies in the building, that the target building is shooting heavy fire at us. I can say one word and everybody knows what to do. If we have people in the target building and we start taking fire, I have one word I can say and everybody knows what to do. So there's a breakdown of communication here because no one has put out, hey, there's a freaking shooter in our school that's gunning people down. No one, no, no one knows this. So no one knows what's happening. So as you think through these scenarios, you need to come up with some pro words so that everyone understands what's happening. At the same time, the Uvalde Police Department posts on Facebook, large police presence at Robb Elementary. We ask the public to avoid the area. So there's not communication between the school and the police. Do Are there police radios in the school? That seems like a really obvious question. But does the school have the ability to communicate with the police directly through radios? Because this is not a very hard thing to figure out. It's not a very costly thing to figure out. Eleven forty-four a.m. The police officers are are inside. 
police with with the city of Uvalde are and, and the school district are inside the school. This is eleven forty four. Uvalde police officers enter the building where the shooter is from the north entrance. They hear gunfire, are shot at, move back and get cover. Again, if you're getting shot at, you now have a general idea of where the shooter is. And if you have a general idea with where the shooter is, then it's time to maneuver. It's time to flank. A, a, a shooter can only cover so many different directions at the same time. And how, how do I know that? Because I've been on both sides of those scenarios. When you, when you train properly, you not only act as the good guys, you spend time as a bad guy. So you start to realize what works and what doesn't work. That's the benefit of training. Back to the document. Around this time, Arredondo and another Uvalde police officer enter the building through the south entrance. Arredondo witnesses the gunfire. He then checks the door to the classroom that the shooter is in, finding it locked. He uses his cell phone to call for SWAT teams, snipers, extrication tools, and keys to the classrooms. This is at 11.44. So all this has taken place for almost over 20 minutes this has been going on. And only now we're getting a call for SWAT team snipers, breaching tools. And it's on a cell phone? I mean, how? why are we making calls on a cell phone? Why is that happening? We have radios. There's a reason you have radios, direct communication. Instantaneous, immediate, direct communication to a whole net of people. Oh, that's right. Well, he doesn't have his radio. So he's making cell phone calls. It says, there's a quote in here. Initial officers are there and receive gunfire, therefore do not make entry. Officers call everyone in the area for additional resources. Tactical teams, equipment, specialty equipment, body armor, precision riflemen, and negotiators. They're evacuating students and teachers during this time. And this is from Victor Escalon, a DPS official, during a press conference on May 26th. From the very beginning of this whole thing, you clearly have an active shooter that needs to be hunted down and killed. That's completely evident from the first moments. As soon as a car crashes and two guys go to help and they and he gets shot at, or those two guys get shot at by someone who then maneuvers towards a school, this is a active shooter situation and someone needs to hunt this guy down and kill him. And that's the mode that needs to be gone into instantaneously. And there's going to be risk. There's going to be risk when you're going up against someone with a gun. There's a risk that you're going to die. 
And that's what we in the military and law enforcement sign up for. And we have to think through that, actually. And you have to train for that. And the first time that you think about getting shot and the probability that you get shot shouldn't be in an actual gunfight. This shouldn't be the first time this is going through your head. You should do training. And you need to do training where you understand what you're going to be put up against. And you should understand what that feels like. And you should either get over it and accept that as part of your job or you should get a different job. Eleven forty-eight. There's an uh, an officer's wife is shot. So Uvalde, CISD police officer Ruben Ruiz, can be heard telling other officers as he arrives inside the school that his wife, Eva Morales, has been shot. So I. You know, you, you look at this woman, the school teacher just seemed like an amazing human. Um, she's got pictures. There's pictures of her. She's, you know, outdoors. She's enjoying life. She's out running. She's hiking. She's doing Spartan races. She's doing CrossFit. She's just seems like an awesome woman. And, and had a daughter with, with Ruben Ruiz. So he gets word that she that she's shot. a.m., more police arrive. More law enforcement officials arrive at the scene. Again, so what are we doing at this point? Who is running things at this point in time? Now you got 15, 20 law enforcement officers on scene, and you got one bad guy. That's a fight we can win all day long. All day long, we're gonna win. And we might take some casualties, but we can win that fight all day long. Eleven fifty-four a.m. There's uh, an onlooker starts filming. Twenty-one minutes after the shooter enters the school. An onlooker streams a live video showing parents begging police to enter the school. Now this is very difficult to watch. This is actually sickening to watch. There are parents that are going crazy with frustration. They wanna help their kids. And in, and in some of these videos, you can see that the parents are being held back by officers with long guns, with rifles, with assault rifles. And, and they're, what they're doing is keeping the parents at bay. Now, here, now here's what's difficult to understand. Most likely, I, I can just about guarantee these officers that are doing this have no idea what's going on. They have no idea what's happening. They, they probably think they're doing the right thing, which is, hey, there's an active shooter in there. My teammates are in there killing this guy, so I need to make sure these civilians stay safe. That's what they're thinking. 
And why are they thinking that? It's because no one in this, this whole scenario is detached and connecting the pieces, which is what needs to happen when this kind of thing goes down. Someone has got to take a step back and piece together what's happening and put together a plan. So these parents, you watch these parents, they, they actually are somewhat detached. The parents are kind of detached because they can see that there's, why is this shooting continuing? Why is this happening? Twelve oh three. Police continue to arrive, and a student calls nine one one from inside. A student calls nine one one from room one twelve for a minute and twenty three seconds, and identifies herself in a whisper. Meanwhile, as many as nineteen officers are positioned in the school's hallway. Nineteen officers. And now we know that we got kids in there alive. And you have nineteen officers. 1210, the student calls back. The student calls 911 again and says multiple people are dead. So now you know for sure the shooter is a psychopath that needs to be stopped. That's what you know. Twelve thirteen p.m., student calls 911 again. Student calls a third time. Authorities have not expanded on our comments during this call. 1215, Border Patrol Tactical Unit arrives. Border Patrol Tactical Unit members carrying shields arrive. And sh- look, ballistic shields are a great, an awesome tool to have. For sure. They're, they're great. We're not waiting for this. If there's kids that are going to be killed, we're not waiting for shields to show up. Twelve sixteen p.m. Student calls nine one one once again. The student calls nine one one again, saying eight or nine students are alive. So now we know we got live kids in there, and we got more than enough people to to to, to make this happen. Twelve seventeen. Oddly enough, the school announces there's an active shooter on campus. I mean, what's happening? in our overall, from an overall leadership perspective between the school and the police when we have at 12.17, as there's dead children, dead teachers, and now we're announcing that we have an active shooter on campus. The onlookers, the, the parents are now begging for action. Here's a little pullout. At, at some point during the standoff, onlookers beg police to charge the school. According to the Associated Press, parents try to break windows and are not allowed to immediately be reunited with their children. Again, there's video of this. It's, it's sickening to watch. There's parents yelling out, what are you doing? Get inside the building. Go protect the kids. And there's a, one mom, one mom, Angeli Rose Gomez, she gets cuffed. She gets cuffed for, quote, intervening with an active investigation. And 
I can't even give this woman enough props and praise. She she like pretended to calm down so that they would release her. Once they released her, she distanced herself from the crowd, got away from like all the hype and all the mania, and then she jumped the fence, went in and got her two kids out. Meanwhile, she said that other fathers got tackled, pepper sprayed, and tased. Again, I, I, somebody has to take a step back and get control of the situation, and no one did that here. And is there a chance that someone in this group of people, one of these police officers, happens to be a really good leader and happens to understand what to do in dynamic situations and happens to have the authority and the leadership skill to get control of the situation? Is there a chance that someone might have that? There's a chance. There's also a chance that no one has that. And that's why you have to train people so that they can perform in these situations. And you have to, and by the way, the training also is a screening to see what kind of personality people have and see what kind of shortfalls they have as leaders. And some people don't have the cognitive capacity to make these decisions. And some people don't have the, the cognitive capacity to take a step back. And some people don't have the wherewithal to press through in tough scenarios. And so as as leaders, we need to know who those people are. This mom, Miss Gomez, Mrs. Gomez, she is that type of person to take action, to be default aggressive, get things solved. She was detached enough emotionally to realize she had to get away from the mob, get to a position where she could maneuver in. She, she was able to do this. Some people have that natural ability. Some people don't. And I'm gonna get to this in a little bit. There's also training that has to be overcome. Sometimes people fall into training habits that aren't good. So we have to train to the point that we recognize when what we've been trained to do isn't working. Twelve nineteen p.m. Another student calls 911 from, from room 111. Hangs up when another student tells her to. 1221, gunman fires again. Authorities say he was believed to be at the classroom's door. On a 911 call from a student, three gunshots can be heard. This is over and over again. Things that would mean to me as a tactical leader, we go right now, This there's time after time after time after time, there's execute criteria. A room full of kids, there's a guy in there, he's shooting. You go. There's not a debate, you go. That's what you do, you go. You go through the windows, you breach the doors, you do whatever you gotta do to get in there. That's what you do. Twelve thirty-six. student in room 111 calls back again. Same student calls back for 21 seconds and is told to stay on the line quietly. 12.43, gunman shoots the door. The 
student tells 911 that the gunman shot the door. Okay. There's, there's another execute criteria. And you do what you have to do to get in there. Windows. You put ladders up to the windows. You crash, you, you, you crash through those windows. You crash a vehicle into the windows. You shoot the door off the hinges. That's what you do. 1246, I can hear the police next door. Student called 911. 1246, Arredondo gives the approval to enter. If y'all are ready to do it, you do it, he says, according to a transcript of police body cam footage. 1246. 1246. Over an hour. Twelve forty-seven. Nine one one. Call from a student. Please send police now. Twelve fifty. Border Patrol tactical unit officer breaches the room and uses using a janitor's keys and kills the gunman. And I I don't have I don't have any details on on how that actually happened yet. Uh, I've I know Bortac people, which is the Border Patrol tactical unit Bortac. I know them. I've actually worked with them a little bit. I've got some reports that that they disobeyed orders where people were telling them not to enter and they did it anyways. Good on them. But you know what I've been saying this whole time: go in, go in, go in. And you think to yourself, well, if you go in, are you going to get shot? If you go in, is this going to happen? You don't know. But look what happens when these guys finally go in. They go in there and they kill the guy. That's what happens. You got to go on offense. Twelve fifty-one. Children are moved out of the room. So, twelve fifty-one, one oh six. Police announce the shooter is in custody because the border patrol went in there and killed him. And then Uvalde police announced on Facebook that the shooter is in custody. Authorities recanted that information later. So there you have it. Um, what can we learn from this? Uh, and again, at this point in time, I'm focused on what can we learn from this tactical situation that unfolded? What can we learn from it? I know there's a whole bunch of, a whole slew of other topics to talk about, and those are happening on a massive level, and those will continue to happen. But as an area that I actually know a decent amount about is this. So that's what I'm talking about. 
and and first of all, and I've been saying this for years, police need more training. Police, 20% of time, 20% of working hours for police should be spent training. That's what should happen. That's what needs to happen. And, And listen, you think, oh, that that there's now going to be less people out on patrol, less police out on patrol. Their, their effectiveness will more than make up for the fact that there's less police on patrol. Who would you rather, if you were in a hostage situation with some crazy person in your house, who would you rather have show up, 10 untrained people or 8 highly trained people? And if you're not sure about that, let me tell you, because I guarantee you all day long, I'll take eight highly trained people over 10 untrained people all day. All day. And I'll tell you, I am now, I've started to talk to some organizations to see how Echelon Front, my company, can help do this on a national level. What should this training con- consist of? What, what are we training police in? Well, combatives, for one thing. Shooting, breaching, first aid trauma, de-escalation. A- and anybody that's listening that doesn't know much about the police, you might think they do all this stuff all the time. They don't. They don't do this all the time. They barely get to shoot. I bet you 99% of police have very limited training, if any, in breaching, in how to breach a door with a, with a shotgun. Combatives, barely any, barely any training. Close quarters combat, room clearing. Urban combat clearance. How do you handle an active shooter? How do you handle a barricaded shooter? And then you've got to run scenarios. You got to put people into these situations. You got to get simunition or some kind of round that can be fired at other people during training. You need assets, you need role players. so that people get used to it. And you absolutely get better. This is exactly what I did for a living, was train young SEALs so that they understand what to do in these types of situations. And you can watch and see them learn and get better. And over time, they eventually get to a point where they know exactly what to do. Yeah, they learn about the basic fundamental principles, cover and move, simple, prioritize and execute, decentralized command. They're gonna learn about those things. They're gonna learn about decentralized command, which means when I show up and there's something going on and I'm the junior guy, but I'm the first person there, I can make things happen, I can make decisions. I know what the priorities are. That's what they learn. They learn how to detach. You've heard me say someone's gotta take a step back and figure out what's happening broadly. Well, that's what people learn when you run them through the appropriate training. They learn how to communicate. They learn the importance of communications. They learn not to go into dynamic scenarios without a radio so they can communicate with the rest of their troops. This 
so much of this whole thing was people not seeing the big picture. No one assembled the entire scene to understand what was happening. And therefore, no one made the broad call that needed to be made, which is get in there. Get in there. We're going. And this does take training. It does take training. Now, it doesn't take training if you're a parent and your kid's in there. That doesn't take any training. That's instinct. And I'll talk a little bit about that. But it takes training. I had experienced SEALs. I would have experienced SEALs that would fail to take action when they needed to. And we'd have to have them do that training again and maybe again and maybe again until they realize that when they don't take action, everything's going to fall apart. So even SEALs would have a hard time in some cases figuring these things out. Now, like I said, the parents that were there, they were they were detached and maybe not emotionally because they're 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 obviously horrified by what's going on but some of the parents you can go watch the videos they're making matter of fact statements about what was going on they're saying there's kids in there there's shooting going on now to this idea of instinct which i mentioned instinct versus methodology versus instinct Okay, you have an instinct of what to do. And in some cases, you need to get trained against that instinct. It's just like in jujitsu. There's certain things where your instinct is wrong. And so it takes some training to teach you to overcome your instinct. To learn a methodology that's superior to the instinct. And there are times when the methodology is wrong and the instinct is correct. What what do I mean by that? I got a story about J.P. Donnell. J.P. Donnell, one of my guys in my last deployment to Iraq. And outstanding guy, SEAL, sniper, point man, outstanding guy. And when we first started working together, we were out in the desert. And we're doing a patrol out in the desert. And the patrol stopped, and I'm looking at JP. And JP's standing out in the open. He's just standing out in the open. Now, we're out in the desert, but it's not a barren desert. There's rocks and shrubs and micro-terrain features. And we stop our patrol, and JP's standing out in the open. And I walk over to him, and I said, Hey, JP, if you were 10 years old right now, and we were playing war, where would you be standing? And he pointed over to a little bush with some rocks around it with a little terrain to hide behind. And he said, right over there. And I said, let your 10-year-old instinct, let it come to life. Let it do its job. That's where you should be. I know the standard operating procedure is when the patrol stops, you set down in your position in your field of fire, you halt and you stay there. But if you can move six yards and have good cover and concealment, that's what you should do. So sometimes people train to a point, like these police officers probably, and I've heard some some talk about this, hey, it's a barricaded shooter, which means we, he's gonna be staying there and we should negotiate. So they got in this mode 
of well barricaded shooter he's not he we should just negotiate with him the reality of the situation it wasn't barricaded shooters he was moving around he was still shooting the entire time that's not a barricaded shooter that's decided to hole up and negotiate for some kind of ransom not at all they got stuck in that mode what needed to happen was action a methodical entry a perfect entry into the building if you were to plot out the perfect close quarters combat operation for this school and how many people you would need and what methodology you would move for the building and what type of breaches you would use on the doors and which would be most efficient all that stuff goes out the window when there's an active shooter in a room with a bunch of kids your instinct needs to be to get in there and some of those parents had that instinct yelling get into the building but the training methodology had boxed these guys in mentally where they thought, oh, well, we don't have shields. And, and it, this is, uh, I'm speculating at this point, but oh, if we don't have ballistic shields, we shouldn't go in there. Hey, we were taught not to go into a, a shooter situation, an active shooter situation without ballistic shields. We're waiting for the ballistic shields. No, that's the methodology you've been taught. It's not working right now. What about the windows? Walking up to the windows, smashing a window. Shooting through the window. You can do that. Throwing crash grenades through the windows. Put 10 crash grenades through the windows on this guy. There's a bunch of different things that if if you do what you would naturally do in a situation, you're probably right. So what you have to do is you ha- you're going to have instinct. You're going to have a natural instinct. The instinct could be wrong. The instinct could be right. I mean, here's an instinct. When somebody's shooting at me, I'm going to run away. I'm not going to go back. So, so police officers have to overcome that instinct to go and stay and maneuver towards fire. That's overcoming their natural instinct. But there's sometimes where the methodology is wrong. And so you have to be good enough to overcome your methodology and go with your instincts sometimes. I used to, it's another thing I used to say to these young seals. If you, I'd say, hey, if you were gonna go in that room right now and I was in there and you were 10 years old and I was 10 year old, years old and I had a squirt gun and you had a squirt gun and you were gonna enter this room, how would you do it? And they'd show me. And I'd say, doesn't that make more sense than what you just did? And they'd say, yeah, it does. But they would follow some standard operating procedure that didn't make sense in a particular room. But they would do what they were taught to do even though it didn't make sense. And the ability to decide whether your instinct is right or wrong, you get that ability by being able to take a step back and assess. And the way you get that ability to take a step back and assess is through training. And it takes time. And that's why I use that term, that, that, that idea of 20% of time for police officers should be spent training. And you're going to end up with infinitely more qualified and prepared police. There was a, um, there was a fighting methodology, a combatives methodology, a system 
that was being used in the SEAL teams. And it was, it was, it was, it was ineffective. It was an ineffective system. But one of the reasons that it was argued to be a good system was because there was a one-week course of instruction of this fighting methodology that if you took this one-week course of instruction, then you were qualified and allegedly prepared for combat. Well, you can't learn to fight in one week. It's not gonna happen. You can't learn good combative skills in one week. And, and so I was bringing up to my chain of command, hey, this combative system is ineffective. We should use some kind of a more mixed martial arts combination of jiu-jitsu, wrestling, boxing, Muay Thai, using our weapons in those scenarios. And one of the arguments that I got against that idea was that, oh, that stuff takes years to learn. It takes takes years to learn this stuff. This stuff we can teach people in a week. Well, you know what I said to that? I said, well, we're in the damn teams for 20 years. Let people get good. You shouldn't tell someone that after a week of training, they're going to be good to go. They're not. Training has to happen all the time. And by the way, eventually we do have a great jiu-jitsu, wrestling, boxing, Muay Thai-based combative system in the SEAL teams, which is you also utilize your weapons, you utilize your gear, but it's based in these things that work. And it takes time to get good at. No one says, oh, you've been through a one-week course. You can handle yourself now because we know that that's not true. So it comes down to training. And there's a, look, are there a bunch of other factors, a bunch of other things that we can address? Yes, there absolutely are. There are a bunch of other things to talk about. But like I said, this is something that I know and something that I understand. Training people for stressful, dynamic, dangerous situations, and that's what we need to do with our law enforcement. We need to train them properly. Because we owe it, we owe it to them, we owe it to our police and law enforcement to train them properly, we owe it to the law-abiding citizens of this country. And of course, we owe it to the innocent children that are just trying to get their freaking education in school. So that's my initial take on this scenario. Um, again, I, I, I talked about some of the other factors with Daryl Cooper on our Unraveling podcast. Um, but I wanted to address this here and try and get this word out. With that, Equa Charles. Yes. You uh, you know how like a lot of times where sometimes when these things happen, you, you hear of like all these solutions, right? Whether it be armed guards in schools, gun control laws, like, you know, everyone has their, their take. What do you think are some of the solutions that off the top of your head that are not practical or doable or probably wouldn't be effective that you've heard? 
there, there's 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 a whole slew of things going on, and there's many facets that lead to this situation. I, as far as I don't really think too much about hey, what wouldn't work? And and one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about this is this is this is what I know will help in a situation like this. If you train people properly, they'll be able to handle these situations. If you could snap your fingers and have all the schools, you know, be totally safe, of course. Of course. We'll take that all day long. We don't get to operate in fantasy world. There's crazy, mentally disturbed people out there. And if you haven't listened to that podcast I did with Daryl, one of the most shocking statistics that come out came out from it was in 1955, there were 340 inpatient beds for every 100,000 people in America that needed mental health help. 340 beds for every 100,000 citizens. Those beds were dedicated for mental health. Wait, they had that many available, available. for them? Yep. Just told, not necessarily taken up, just available yep. for them. So out of every 100,000 people, mm-hmm. there's 370 inpatient mental health beds available in mental health facilities, right? Yeah. In 2007, there was 17. Yeah, 17. So that's a 95% reduction in the amount of available mental health facilities for people that need help. And by the way, during this time, we've added all kinds of other crazy things into the mix with drugs, legal drugs, illegal drugs, prescription drugs, all kinds of media violence, whether it's social media, whether it's violent movies, whether it's violent video games, all that's added into the mix. The SSRIs, the the isolation of, of being on social media in the first place, the breakdown of the family structure, like all these things are happening. You throw those all, the, all those things into the mix and then you have less mental health available, that's, that's where you end up. One of the things that, that you end up. So I, I don't know if that necessarily answered your question about what would not help. I try and look at what can we actually do immediately to try and start getting people in a better situation, getting getting these things freaking moving in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking because um, I remember you said something about uh, like you're an advocate of like having an armed guard at the school, mm-hmm. right? Where they're retired military yep. or, or this was a while ago. Um, and then I remember hearing the option of training teachers or arming the teachers. That's what it was. Yep. Do, so how do you feel about arming teachers? It's, a, it's the same thing. You need to train the teachers. Yeah. Are you going to train the teachers? Because you got to train the teachers. Which, you, can you train the teachers? Yes, you can. You can train some of them. Some of them that want to get trained. Mm-hmm. You know, the armed guard thing. My mom was a school principal. And and then she was a superintendent of schools. And I remember when these school shootings started happening, I was immediately like, hey, you should put, there should be two dudes sitting in a closet, you know, with video cameras, closed circuit television cameras. They're watching what's going on. And if anything ever happens, they come out and they kill bad guy. I wish I would have been super vocal about it. 
because some of these things would have been stopped a lot quicker. And then, like I said, there's some people that say, well, you know, what kind of world are we living into when we need to? Let me rephrase that because I'm, I'm using a horrible voice. Some people say, hey, what kind of world are we living in where we have to put armed guards in a school? I'll tell you, the world that we created. The world that we created, you need to have armed guards in school because we're, we, we've got some serious issues, yeah. some serious cultural and societal issues that makes a, an 18-year-old kid want to get a machine gun and go into a freaking school and start killing kids. That's, what's, that's why. Mm-hmm. So if you say to me, what kind of a world are we living in where we need to put armed guards in schools, I will say the United States of America. Do I like it? Do I like the fact that we have to do that? No. Do I like the fact that I gotta, you know, wear a seatbelt when I drive a car because I might crash? I don't really like it, but I'm gonna do it. I remember I was in high school and there was security there. They didn't have, they weren't armed, that I knew of, but I feel like, granted, this is high school, so elementary school is a little bit different. And I'm thinking back, if they were armed, I don't think that would have made that much of a difference. If they were, I mean, if they were like prison guards, like, you know, ordering, actually, these security guards are pretty mean, too, to everybody. Mm-hmm. They weren't like hosts, you know, I, I envision it where they should be nice, ho- like, almost yeah. like nice teachers almost kind of a thing like chaperones you know sometimes teachers get like yard duty that's what they call it in my yep. school where they go out and monitor the school kids. Folsom <laughs> no God. no it was like well I'm t- okay so elementary school teachers have yard duty right certain ones and basically they just go outside and recess and just make sure no one acts up or whatever mm-hmm. and no one really acted yeah, up. yeah so what you're talking about is people that are people that are employed at the school to keep the students in check Yes, exactly there's right. a difference between someone that's at school to keep the students in check and someone that's at school to prevent someone from coming and harming the students. Yeah, so those are two different people you'd be looking for. Yes, but in in high school, when I'm thinking about the security, that's what these and actually there were ladies, two of them, and they were there, yes, for to keep people in check in all capacities. But what I'm saying is maybe one or two levels more advanced, we'll say, is instead of two ladies with just radios. They were retired military or guys with, yeah, you know, with guns, not necessarily overt, you know, with right, badges right. and, you know, but their presence is kind of known or whatever. It's not intimidating. It's more of like a host kind of scenario, yeah. um, you know, like a like a uh, someone who's on the kid's side kind of a thing more so than someone, you know, with their eagle eyes open for any trouble, you know, that kind of thing, even though that is what they're doing. That's not their presence. That's not like what it's, what it feels like. Yeah. You need to be careful with that. You, if you're going to have someone that's going to be doing security, they should be doing security. Look, can someone be dual rolled? Sure. But if you're going to put someone on security, like their purpose is security, you don't want them breaking up fights over potato chips in a schoolyard. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah, You want them to be focused on what they're supposed to be focused on. Is it smart to have people that are dual trained? Sure. But someone has to be, if you put someone on security for the purpose of being on security, they should be on security. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, like you said, and like I said, this doesn't mean they need to be walking around with body armor, visible body armor and 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 a weapon, an assault rifle, like posted up. They don't need to be like that. But they, I mean, they could literally be sitting in a central location in a closet with yeah. with closed circuit TVs, 
And when something like this happens, they know what to do. Mm. I remember the the arming the teachers um, option, and I remember uh, kind of talking to some of our friends that are actual actual teachers, and it kind of put things into perspective. Because at first, I was like, "Yeah, that makes sense." You know, it's not like you know, give them just a little bit of training or whatever. But at least it's one more good guy on the field, you know, with you know who's armed and can protect. But then. I thought about it after talking to some of the teachers. You think about it, like, who wants to become a teacher? And then now becoming a teacher becomes a whole different thing. Mm. Like, right now, it's like, I'm going to teach I want to teach these young minds, you know, to, to get to the next level in life and all this, like, basically all the, the things that people pursue being teachers yeah. over. Um, it shifts to something completely different. Yeah. That, that being said, I bet if there was an option where if you're a school teacher, you can go to a four-week summer course on you know active shooter response and then inside of a school with 30 teachers there's three people that have been to this course i I think we're i think i'm feeling good about that yeah yeah and And they do a refresher course every summer and you know what i'm saying like you got you got to train people you have to train people properly but people are willing to train because it's beneficial in a multitude of different ways. Yeah, that's interesting. I never th- thought about that where it's like the, kind of the optional training or whatever right. because I was just thinking of it in terms of like, hey, because this is how they'd, they'd say it. I don't, you know, they don't go into depth or nothing. They're just like, yeah, I'm the teachers. Yeah. Like all the teachers, they got guns. Now. Yeah. So, so to your earlier question is like, what's a solution that won't work? The problem with that is the, the problem with that is the details of any solution. You take any one of these solutions and there's certain details that would make it better and some details if you don't include them are going to make it a disaster. Oh, yeah. Like you just throw weapons into every classroom with random people that haven't been trained, you 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 that's that's going to be a problem. Yeah. Right? Cuz you got teachers that are that are that might go crazy. Right? There's all kinds of things going on. So you take any of these solutions and you take it to a certain extent. I mean, some of the some of the ways of looking at things can be so different depending on who you are that, like what's the term they use? Reasonable gun control. Reasonable gun yeah. control means completely different things to different people depending on who you are and what your background is. So true. And so to just say, hey, we should have reasonable gun control, like I said, that means completely different things depending on who you're talking to. Yeah. So... That's why for this, for this, I just want to talk about, hey, here's something I do know about, and here's a pragmatic solution that will help, and it should be, it should, it should be implemented. <laughs> Bro, that's so true, huh? Because there, there's guys, and you know, this is going to come as no surprise, but when you put it into perspective, where there are people who at six years old, they got their first gun. Six. Yeah. Yeah. Then same country, same state a lot of time. Maybe even the same neighborhood. There are people who've never shot a gun ever in their life, yeah. and they're like 60 years old. Yeah. So you figure someone who's never shot a gun, never handled a gun or whatever, the idea of a gun potentially can be like that is just a death tool. That is just an a object of death. So they, they just don't know, you know? Mm-hmm. And then versus the guy who got their gun at six, and guns are all around the house and cases and the truck and, you know, all this stuff. Where it's like, no, it's not a thing. A death is just a tool, just like a, a saw or a hammer or something like that. Where, you know how, you know, obviously people say this all the time where it's like, hey, you know, if someone kills someone with a hammer, you don't outlaw hammers. It's like they literally feel guns are the same exact in the same exact category. 
See what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But then the guy, the person who's never shot a gun, how he's going to feel is like, no, a hammer is to hit nails. If someone gets all crazy and starts hitting heads with it, that's different. Guns are made to shoot people kind of a thing. That's their, their mm-hmm. attitude, you know, or their, how they feel about it. So it's like, yeah, then, okay, now, okay, now we need laws now, right, for the guns. But these laws apply to everybody. The six-year-old guy or the guy who's gun at six and also the guy who's never shot a gun ever in his life, these laws have to apply to both people. So it's hard to land those laws, you know, effectively where everyone's going to like them. That's very hard. And what makes it even harder is that the two sides don't talk to each other in a reasonable way to try and figure out what would be a reasonable solution. Yeah, man. So there I am using the reasonable gun laws myself, using that term. That ambiguous term. Yeah, it's true. Well, and then, yeah, because you kind of, it makes sense on a certain level, even though it's still not effective, right? Where, let's say I got a gun, my first gun at six, you know, 22, rifle, freaking awesome. I grow up, all kinds of guns, right? I have all kinds of guns. I've shot. My kids shoot guns, all this stuff. And then you have someone, a whole family of people who live next door or whatever across the street. And they've never shot a gun ever in their life and they're scared of them. So now they're like, hey, you know, they're, we'll just say highly intimidated or something like that. So they come about and they're like, oh my gosh, like a gun or whatever. And then the, the person who's used to guns are like, "How you're kind of being dumb. You're kind of being unreasonable right now. Like this gun, you have to pull the trigger, shoot, you know, point at something, pull the trigger for it to shoot or whatever. It's, it doesn't just automatically kill people, right? So the, you're dumb for being scared about that kind of stuff. The, it's reasonable that that would, that feeling would, would kind of take place. You see what I'm saying? Mm. And then you have the opposite feeling where it's like, oh, you guys are gun nuts. Like you have like, you have 50 guns, 50. I've never shot a gun in my life. I'm scared of guns. And you have 50 of them. Is it unreasonable for me to be uncomfortable if I'm like that? Seems pretty normal is what I'm saying. Mm. So I'm saying like that conflict makes sense to me. Yeah, there's just a total disconnect. Yeah, ineffective, ineffective for solving problems. But it's you can kind of see how it how No, you can, you can see how the disconnect occurs, but mm. it's a disconnect. And the problem with the disconnect occurs when you don't make any attempt to connect. Yes, sir. And I just look at you and say, oh, you are a gun nut and you're crazy. Yeah. And, you know, I, it just it just falls apart. And you look at me thinking, oh, you're a, a person that wants to take all my guns away. Yeah. And so we, I'm just not talking to you. Yeah, some, you're, some chicken, some, you know, incapable chicken trying to uh, take away all, you know, my guns. Disconnect. Disconnect. Uh, with that, if you want to support this podcast, you can go to jockofuel.com and get yourself some get yourself some stuff to make yourself prepared from a physical sense. Yep. Because we got to be prepared mentally. How do you do that? You do that through good training. You got to be prepared physically. How do you do that? Do good workouts, train jujitsu, and eat some good food. Take some good supplementation. Yeah, the, t- the training thing, the more you think about it, and this might be obvious to you, but the more you think about it, you understand how deep training and how valuable training in every single way. Yeah. Like you get someone untrained in a situation, it doesn't even matter the situation. I don't care if it's swimming in the pool. Okay, so if someone jumps in the pool, falls in the pool, they can't swim or they can't swim very well mm-hmm. at all. Now they're, it's dangerous for them. Now you get a normal person who just knows how to swim, try to go jump in there and save them. They could get drowned. They could both die now. Yep. 
Now you get one one person trained. Probably gonna save, save everybody. Yeah. yeah, exactly right. So man, you can take the most arbitrary thing seemingly, and you train someone, you're better off. Yeah, it's weird how people. Um, like the funny thing is, start with leadership, because you know I teach leadership, and people think that they should already know how to lead. Yeah. And so then you start breaking it down for me, like, oh damn, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. Fighting, people think they just know how to fight. Oh, I'll punch him. When I start seeing red, better look out. No, yeah. it's like, oh, oh yeah. you roll with someone that, that's you know a jujitsu player, yeah, or a real boxer. Like you go square off with someone. If you've never boxed before and you square off with a boxer. He's <laughs> not panicking at all, bro. Yeah, you're, you're done. Big trouble. You're done. Big Muay Thai, trouble. you get one kick, one kick. If you don't train Muay Thai and you get kicked in the leg one time, yeah. there's a decent chance you're done fighting. Yes, sir. Well, from a leg kick. Yes, sir. There's a decent chance you call it right there. You're like, all right, this ain't happening. Yeah. So yeah. anything that you do, you if you want to be good at something, you know, the, the, the thing I always use is guitar. There's no more reason that you would be able to fight or lead without training than you would be able to play a guitar without training. Mm-hmm. You, it doesn't. You just can't. You can't win. You know, yeah. like someone that played basketball will beat someone that didn't play basketball yeah. 100% of the time. Yeah, the basketball one I think is really good because when you see someone playing basketball, you'd be like, yeah, you just take that ball. You can't hold it. You got to dribble it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Bounce it, and you put in that hoop. Like, I know what to do. Now, when you go try to do it, you're like, bro, you can't even do it. Yeah. Again, like if someone's trying to do it too with you or against you or whatever, bro, you can't even do it. Yep. Like, so ma- so imagine getting a gun and you don't know what to do with it, but yep. you think you know what to do with it. Yep. You think you're just going to shoot. Or you think that there's going to be a dynamic situation and an active shooter and you think you're going to know what to do. Or you think the people are going to be panicking and you think you're not going to be panicking. Yeah. You have to train in everything that you do. Think about even you who's kind of trained in a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Think about how many things like the a normal person is trained in. Pretty much nothing. Yeah, not much. It's like if you have highly like if you're highly trained in two things, you're like a jack of all trades almost mm-hmm. kind of a thing. <laughs> think about it. Bro, we're not trained in anything, huh? Well, I am. Well, you are. <laughs> Shoot, you got to think about, like, of all the things to be trained in, and I'm not saying expert, I'm just saying trained. Mm-hmm. You have, like, good, usable training. That's what, good. four things? Five, maybe? Yeah. At the most, even. <sighs> Pick out some good stuff to train some in. Training. Yep. Um, Get yourself some Jocko Fuel. JockoFuel.com. Check it out. We've got, oh, by the way, new flavors. Yep, updated. Yeah. We'll this is on me. On me. Oh, right, yes. You know, mm-hmm. I wrote a book called Extreme Ownership. Yep. Well, guess what? The early flavors, my fault. Well, here, this is what you did. I understand, and I thought about this. This is what you did. This is all you did. Tastes good to so, me, kind of. So, you know, when you're, <laughs> when you're young, right? Yeah. Did you ever have those, uh, you know, like orange juice or whatever, the concentrate? You know, the one where it's like... Oh, it's like a frozen, like, sleeve? Yeah, exactly right. And you put it and you mix water, right? So if you look at the... Okay, so my mom mom guys would get that for us, right? Orange juice. Supposed to be like four to one or something. Yes, so that's what they did. They did four... They fill it up four times and put it in in the pitcher, right? The jug or whatever. So I'm like, oh, yeah, cool, sweet. Later on when I grew up in high school, I look at it. I look at the directions. It's three to one. See Mm. what I'm saying? Yeah. 
So it's like they were giving us the more watered down version yeah, of it. Sure. We liked it, loved yeah. it, because that's what we were used to. Yeah. See what I'm saying? Bro, I tasted the three to one. I was like, bro, this is a little bit too concentrated, a little bit too sweet for yeah. me. A little bit. Yeah. That's what you did. Yeah. Because you're all used to water. Yeah. I was, that's your main drink of choice. Yeah. So you're like, ooh, you put some monk fruit in this new energy drink, all this stuff. And you're Seems like, like ooh, it's super sweet, sweet. Sweet to me. You got the four to one going. Yeah. But the three to one is more our speed, I think. A yeah, lot of no, us, you, it's, it's, you know, it's really like a two to. It's almost like <laughs> it's almost. Like, I was like nine to one. <laughs> so, anyways, we got all all new flavors, all new flavors. They're hitting stores right now. Yeah. So, go check them out. They all taste so freaking good. They're, yeah. We're gonna win on taste now. Like we we were kind of crushing everyone because we're making it healthy. It's yeah. pasteurized. It's yeah. you know sweetened with monk. For like that's how we're winning. Mm-hmm. Which is still the case, by the way. It's still the case. Yeah, yeah. We're still winning. We just made adjustments, mm. and now we're going to win on taste. Mm. So mm. now, now you have, now you have awesome, awesome upside, and awesome flavor, <laughs> and no downside. Mm. So there you go. So yep. check that out. Uh, also, you can get them at the you get the stuff at the vitamin shop. You get it. You get the drinks at Wawa. You get stuff at H E B. What is H E B? Down in Texas, it's like the big grocery store. And it's okay. iconic. Everyone loves it. Dang. It's like when you're in Texas, people are kind of hyped on H-E-B. Yeah, yeah, hell yeah. Yeah. Right. I rolled into H-E-B. People were hyped. <laughs> yeah. I dig it, man. So check out H-E-B. We got you covered there, too. Because people have been screaming. Let's face it. Down in Texas, people have been people are in the game in Texas. Okay. Yes, and, and they were, I was getting all the time. For years, I've been getting, hey, H-E-B, H-E-B, H-E-B. Took us a while. We're in H-E-B. Mm. If you're in Texas, you know the deal. Go get some. <laughs> uh, if you want to get some clothing that's made in America, go to originusa.com. We got awesome clothing. We got Hunt Line coming. We got jujitsu geese. We got jeans. We got boots. All that's made in America. It's made in America right here. So go check out originusa.com. Help America. Help your community. Help the economy. Help shut down slave labor. Just, just get on board with the program. That's what we're doing at originusa.com. And don't forget, we have a store. Echo made up the name. What'd you call it? <laughs> First off, you made up the name. It's called, jo- actually, I didn't make it. No, you did right. make up the name, 100%. All right, it's called Jocko Store. So if you want to represent, trained or untrained, but we prefer trained. But you want to represent on this path. Well, that's where you're training. getting. Discipline equals freedom, which is true. The more you think about it, the more true it becomes. I see you got your shirt locker shirt on today. Yes, sir. One of the favorites, the fan favorites. What's the deal with the shirt locker? Shirt locker. Every month you're going to get a t-shirt. Yep. New creative design. Some designs have controversy behind them. Yeah. I'm just going to say it. As it turns out, some de- there was a design that a guy emailed in. Seemingly nice guy. Uh-huh. So I, I don't know, obviously. But emailed in, said, hey, his wife was offended by the shirt. Oh, dang. He needs to return it. Which one is it? Everyone must get stoned? No. Which one was it? The anarchy rip. Oh, okay. Because she thought it was anarchistic. Yeah, she was like, it looks too much like the anarchy symbol. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> thinking in my head, uh, well, good. Yeah. Okay. But I'm just saying. So you made one, just so everyone knows, you made like an anarchy sign, but it was a D for yeah. discipline, kind of turned sideways. It was, there was a resemblance. Yeah. But it was just a, kind of a merely a resemblance. It was a straight up. I'm gonna be honest. It was an homage to the anarchy symbol. There you go. It was straight up. It it served its purpose. I'm just saying it was controversial. Yeah. Apparently, you yeah. Know, so there you go. You okay. Know. You get those from time to time. But anyway, they're creative. You know, good good design. A new one every month. 
mm-hmm. subscription scenario on Jocko right. Store. It's called the Shirt Locker. Right on. So subscribe to this podcast. Subscribe to Jocko Underground. We're about to record some of those Jocko Underground, answering a bunch of your questions, talking about life, life. talking about other aspects of life. Go to jockounderground.com if you want to if you want to get into the game on that. It's also how we're gonna survive getting banned. <laughs> we don't own this platform that you're listening to unless you're listening to on jockounderground.com. We don't own the platform, so we could get banned. We get shut down. People don't want to hear what we have to say. So support us that way. We appreciate it. YouTube, you can check that out. Psychological warfare. Dakota Dakota Meyer just got a a medal for life saving, mm-hmm. and he also uh, so he's out just saving lives. As a firefighter, so support Dakota. You can support Dakota by going to flipsidecanvas.com and buying something cool to hang on your wall. Check that out. I've written a bunch of books. You know what the books are. You can check some of those out. I also have Echelon Front where we teach leadership to solve all the problems that you have, which are leadership problems, echelonfront.com. Also, we have online training at the Extreme Ownership Academy, extremeownership.com. All the little lessons that will help you in every aspect of your life. Is it, is it about leadership? Sure, but it's about life. Go to extremeownership.com and enroll. And you'll see me on there. You wanna ask me a question? You'll see me on a Zoom call. I'll be sitting right here saying, oh, explain the details. Give me some context. Mm-hmm. So come and check that out as well. And also if you wanna help service members active and retired, their families, their Gold Star families, check out Mark Lee's mom's charity organization. It's called America's Mighty Warriors. Dot org and also check out heroesandhorses.org. Those guys are out in the field right now, Micah and the crew. And you can find us on the social media stuff. Don't get isolated on there. Don't get all freaking spun up about the comments. Don't worry about some jackass, you know, 729 Alpha 3 who insulted you. Don't worry about that. But if you want to say hi, you want to say what's up. Echoes at Echo Charles. I'm at Jocko Willink. Watch out for the damn algorithm. And to the rest of our troops in uniform out there right now, stand and watch 24-7, 365. Thank you for what you do. And also, thanks for the service of our police and law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, border patrol. Shout out. Getting it done. Secret service. All first responders. Listen, you have a complex grinding job that requires you to be a family counselor one minute and a tactical assaulter the next. And it's a hard job. And we thank you for what you do. And we want to get you the training that you need to make it happen. And everyone else out there, there's evil in the world evil that we cannot understand evil that will attack a schoolhouse filled with children evil that will kill innocent children and kill school teachers and we certainly need to mourn that loss but we also need to remember that evil is still out there and we need to do what we can to be prepared for the next time it rears its ugly head. And until next time, the Zecco and Jocko out.